Do you want to be a leader who gets noticed, gets things done, and gets real results? Then you need influence and authority. Join host Jennifer McClure to learn how to build authority, expand your influence, and increase your impact. This is the Impact Makers Podcast with Jennifer McClure. Well, hello there, Impact Makers. Thank you for joining me for episode number 40 of the Impact Makers Podcast. I'm Jennifer McClure, a professional speaker and entrepreneur, and my purpose in life is to equip and encourage you and to help you build a career that you love and to live a life that matters. Today, I'm going to be chatting with my friend and mentor, Steve Brown. Steve is a Vice President of Human Resources at LaRosa's Inc. here in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I've known Steve for a really long time. Now, you may remember him from episode number three of the Impact Makers podcast, where we chatted about his first book called HR on Purpose. That book has since sold over 10,000 copies, officially making him a best-selling author. And he's now published a second book, which came out recently called HR Rising. And I had the opportunity, was really honored, to write the foreword for Steve's second book. So instead of reading a boring bio for Steve, I'm actually going to pull a paragraph from the brief foreword that I shared in the book as a teaser, not only to get you to read it, but to tell you a little bit about what I think about Steve. So here we go. For over 20 years now, I've been blessed to call Steve Brown not only a friend, but a mentor. He's been a constant source of encouragement, a wise counselor during difficult times, a connector, and a great example of a positive and powerful business leader, as well as a devoted family man. He's mentored not just me, but hundreds, if not thousands, of HR professionals around the world through his work as an HR executive, a blogger, and a board member of the largest HR association in the world, and an author of now two best-selling books. Yeah, I put a prediction in there. <laughs> in these books, he shares his vision of HR's positive impact and influence in the world. That's who Steve Brown is to me. And I think that's a lot of what we'll talk about today. His vision of the positive influence and impact, not only that HR leaders can have, but leaders of all types. And I ask him in this conversation, if the book or the books that he's written are just for HR leaders, or if they're for leaders of all types. And of course, you can probably guess his answer. Steve believes that these are people books and all leaders obviously work with people. So I think whether you work in human resources or in any other capacity out there in the world, or if you're a leader in life, that this conversation that we have today will be something that you can get some great takeaways from. And I look forward to sharing my conversation with you with my friend, Steve Brown. Well, hey, Steve Brown, how are you today? I'm great, Jen. How are you? Good, thank you. One of these days, I can't wait. It's almost like I'm lying in wait for the day where you go, you know, just not good. It's it's really not good. <laughs> <laughs> you're too positive. I hate that. Tell me you have bad days. Thank you. You are the Bob Goff of HR. It's <laughs> or I don't know who came first. Is Bob Goff, and I'll link to who Bob Goff is in the show notes for those of you that haven't come across him yet. Um, it, it, maybe he's the Steve Brown of uh, whatever it is he does. I'm not sure. Not sure. So you are the second repeat guest, if we count Laurie and Roy Rudiman and my BFF conversations. So I want you to sit for a moment in that honor. <laughs> Very cool. Very honored. Because, because there's a reason why you have been invited back to the Impact Makers podcast. On the first one, we talked about your book, HR on Purpose, although it had not just recently been published, but now you have big news. You have the follow-up book, HR Rising, which published or went live, what, about a month ago? Yes. And so I want to help people hear all about that because I want them to buy it. And you know why I want them to buy it? No. <laughs> well, secondarily, it's a really great book, but there's a forward at the beginning of the book <laughs> <laughs> that is, I don't know, it may just be probably the best forward I've ever read. Tell us about the forward, Steve. <laughs> the forward is written by a person named Jennifer McClure. I don't know if you know her or not. I do. <laughs> uh, she's a very talented person, speaker, author, soon to be author. This is the way for me to get you to finally write a book. 
Uh, yeah, it felt like writing a book trying to do that. But anyway, just joking aside, I'm really, really excited about this and having had the opportunity to, to get an advanced copy and read both of them. I want to help people to that maybe don't know about you or your books to learn about them. But also, I mean, you're a practitioner, you're an executive, you're on the SHRM board, you got a lot going on on a normal day. And then we've had all of the the things going on in the world over the last few months that have changed a lot of things. And you're right in the thick of it as a, a practitioner leader in your business and organization. So I think you've got a lot to share. So what's uh, keeping you awake at night these days, Steve? We'll start with the difficult question. The thing that's keeping me awake at night is the lack of empathy I'm seeing everywhere in organizations, in people in their conversations in person and people in their conversations online we've just kind of stripped it away. And it's funny, when you bring it up, people think it's a soft skill instead of something that is very powerful. In the book, I talk about empathy being a business skill. And I would love to see businesses quit trying to differentiate between a hard skill and a soft skill because it downplays skills that are related to people. Mm -hmm. However, that's where we spend the majority of our time. So When I see empathy missing, especially when it comes to understanding the virus or the social unrest that's going on, I wish there was more conversation and room for conversation to understand, to empathize, to learn, to call to action and move forward through dialogue, not just demand. Right now, there's a big, you know, do this because movement, and um, that's hard to respond to. Mm -hmm. So... If empathy is not a, quote, soft skill in your mind, is it something then that can be taught, learned, developed? I think it's something you can make people aware. Some people don't have it in them. And I think we've tried to force it on people. I know that people say, Steve's not a people person, or Susie's not a people person, or, you know, just pick a name. And you go, well, what does that mean? Well, they're not nice to people. Well, empathy isn't about being nice. Empathy is listening. Uh, listening to hear, listening to understand, listening to get context. It's not about solving everything. We're in such a rush to get things done that we just plow over people every day at every level. We're so concerned with what's going on in our lives, whether it really has value or not. We think it does because we're so self-focused. So if you become someone in an organization that's others-focused, you're like a, a fish out of water. Mm-hmm. People are like, man, you spend a lot of time with other people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and don't you as well? It's really interesting. Uh, I've been watching and listening to conversations in the organization. And people will try to cloak it in. We're dealing with this process. We're dealing with this issue. We're dealing with this symptom. And then the next thing after they say that is, and Kevin, you go, wait a minute. If it's the system or the, or the process, what does Kevin have to do with it? Right, And what you find out is the majority of our day is talking about people. So I think people are people-oriented, but I don't know that they're empathetic towards that. Interesting. So can you give us an example of where empathy has come into play either in an interaction with you or that you've seen with someone else where it's been done well? Recently, the whole mask, no mask issue. It's, you know, wow, I can't think of anything that has let people on fire. I mean, people just get really vocal, (laughs) really (laughs) emotional. And what's funny is uh, I flew a few weeks ago to go to a board meeting and American Airlines had this long disclaimer. It sounded like an HR handbook. Everybody must wear a mask. If you don't wear a mask, you may never fly again and we will ban you and there will be exceptions. And I went, no, wait a minute. Scare. Oh, by the way, there's an (laughs) exception. And that's reality. There isn't a way to make everything fit everybody. And we've had instances here at the company where somebody has presented medical documentation to say, I can't wear a mask because. Mm -hmm. And they're in a management role. So how do you go to a manager who's supposed to make sure that people are compliant wearing these masks and they can't? And it's legit. It's hard. So I had to listen to the story of why not just the medical condition, assess it. And then I need to go defend that person to their staff to say, yes, we're asking you to wear a face covering, but they don't have to. 
Well, that's not fair. I go, I know. How about that? But I, I've had, gosh, daily conversations just to walk people through fear. Mm-hmm. My goodness. Uh, conversations of, I might be sick. What's going to happen? What will happen to my family? We had one person who was given poor information. They were told it was positive and it wasn't. And she called and was in tears saying, I was planning my funeral. Mm. And you go, wow. I mean, you don't hear that every day. I'm very thankful that I have a relationship with our staff that I can have those empathetic conversations. They feel safe to have those and they feel open enough to share. But it's draining, I'm telling you. It takes up a lot of your a lot of your energy. Wow, we are in uh, some really obviously unprecedented. That is the word I hate of the day. Uh, unprecedented times, but HR leaders have really been. It's always been my argument that uh, HR leaders were the most important person in the the organization because I felt like that was the place for influence and impact. But I think it's really come to play over the last few months where because businesses have had to change everything about their operations and the way they do things, and the only way to do that is to figure out the people issues first, even the HR leaders that didn't, quote, have the seat at the table or, or weren't considered a strategic part of the executive team have been brought into the room to say, what are we going to do, Right. And, and how have you seen HR leaders respond to that call? I've seen incredible, great, forward-thinking, agile, creative, disruptive leadership, and I've seen abject fear at the same time uh, because it's a new environment for us. It's a new arena for us. I have daily conversations with my CEO. I always have. I'm very fortunate that I get to do that. But we talk about people upfront all the time. And now I'm getting peers and seeing others who are saying, gosh, senior management's talking to me. They're coming to me. I'm going to them. The relationship that should have been understood and developed over time is now occurring. The big change for me is this. When, uh, and I'll talk about the ones who are struggling here in a second, but the ones who are now having the seat, the, you know, the elusive myth- mythical seat like a Game of Thrones thing. They are understanding it's not a seat, it's a relationship. Oh, I like that. I think we've always been trying to posture for visibility and a place at the table instead of saying, I need to have a relationship to make my organization better. So now HR people are saying, because I'm a relationship person, that's what I do well, I'm going to make these relationships forge across the organization and move it forward You have to come to me because all of our company is relationship-based, whether you like it or not, Mm -hmm. whether you recognize it or not. So now people aren't looking for a seat. They're trying to make a fabric, an environment, a culture. It's not a phrase. It's a reality. So that's a big shift, huge. And it's forcing our profession to become agile because we are terrible at it. You know, we talk about agile HR and there's webinars and all kinds of crud authors. And what they're trying to do is coax us to water instead of saying, now you're forced on it. Mm-hmm. Now you've been, it's been placed upon you. What are you going to do? I like that. I like the living dangerously type HR, you know, the James Bond type HR, much more fun. The ones that are afraid though, I'm very concerned for because for years, they've not been people oriented HR practitioners. They've been very process oriented practitioners and very good at what they do. And I wrote recently on a blog, if you lead with policy first versus people first, you're not doing HR as well as you could. Mm -hmm. Because this isn't about framing things. It's about working through things. Now, you may have to have policies that support and procedures that support and things like that to frame things and give people a framework to work in or parameters to work in. But if the first thing is, how do I define this versus how do I work through it? I think you're just missing an opportunity. Do you... In terms of where you work in the organization where you work, have you and your leadership team really had to pull out the values or, you know, your kind of core beliefs on a regular basis to, as you make these decisions to work through things and say, does this go against that? Is, are we following this? Are you using those on a regular basis? Yes. I'll give you a good example. A while back, about six months ago, I was sitting down with the CEO 
And he says, so explain this people first thing you keep talking about. I know we've talked about it and I think it's what we've been. And honestly, my company has been people first. I don't want to speak poorly. It's just making it happen versus just saying it on a wall or saying it in a book. It's very good intentions. I know that's where our heart is. And then an emergency hits, a crisis hits, and we rush to get things done. And we go, oh, shoot, we just trampled all the people. And we've done it a few times. And not out of bad intent or ill will. It's just we're so concerned with addressing the crisis, we forget that there's people involved first. We've had to reassess that. Now, let me give you a good example. We went to curbside pickup. If people don't know, and they're listening to the podcast, I work for a pizzeria, which is the best pizza on the planet. And if you're not a guest, you should be because La Rosa's is the best pizza place ever. And that's shameless, but I'm the guest and I can say that. Mm -hmm. We did not have curbside pickup. We've been talking about it for years, literally years. Now, because the environment forced us to change, the talented, wonderful people who do this well sat down and said, here's our situation. How do we do this? And how can we do it and incorporate our team? And within a day, a day, something we had been fighting for years was up and running and our sales have been doing well because we were able to adjust. From that though, I've made sure to go back to the people that put that together to say, that was brilliant. Boy, you're good. Way to be creative. You know, if this is good and you do this in a crisis, how about if we look at it as we perform as an organization? Why should we be agile only to react when we can be agile to perform? Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be better? And I'm getting a lot of people going, wow, that's, that's different. And it is because you get caught in the midst of a fire all the time. At the same time, we've had other times where we've just run too fast and trampled people. and We've had to go and pick up the pieces. We made some adjustments and now things go through me on people issues. And you would say, well, why wouldn't they? People need to be more honest. I, I love HR people go, all people issues go through me. That's a lie. <laughs> <laughs> people try to handle things on their own. And I get that because they just want to get through it. They want to get out of the pain of whatever they're facing. They said, no, we want these things to go to you. Now that they've come to me, I can take care of the team members that are affected, the managers who are affected, and the communication process in the organization. So you become a connector. It's not just I get to take care of people. It's I get to connect the organization better so that we handle this the best possible way we hope. Mm-hmm. And if we get there, I'm good. It's amazing. You know, I, as I said, you know, for years, I've been talking on stages about thinking differently and disrupting HR. And, and as we know, it's not just HR, it's, it's leadership and sometimes leadership is the block, you know, they'll say, we can never do that, you know, or our leadership would never do that. And then you look around at, you know, the restaurant industry in which you work is a great example at so many things that happen so quickly because people said, if we don't do something different, we'll be out of business. Instead of in the past where it was like, if we need to do something different to better meet the needs of the workforce or to change with the times as, you know, the world goes on. Whatever it was that was changing where businesses were digging in their heels and saying, we could never do that. And then, you know, now you've got people doing drive up I-9s and, you know, I I shared an example in a webinar that I did uh, a couple of weeks ago of going through the drive-through at Chick-fil-A, which, you know, they always have done their drive-through experience a little bit different. But I mean, they got, it's raining and they have people in like little tents, you know, portable tents that they wear. And I don't have to touch anything. You know, they have the whole menu memorized and I get ready to pay. And she's like, just show me your, I'm like, this whole process is so radically different. That means, like you said, somebody sat in a room and said, how are we actually going to stay in business? And I wonder if we'll be able to bring that same kind of thinking because it's been very beneficial. As you said, it's helped your business to stay in business. Will we be able to continue to do that when things return to, let's not call it a normal. It's never going to go back to quote normal. Let's not even call it a new normal because I'm tired of that phrase. Let's call it what's next. When we, when we kind of settle in, that's what I'm looking for, at least a settling in to what's next. Will we be able to bring that mindset of anything is possible, everything is possible to change? 
What do you think? I think it's going to be a challenge. We are creatures of habit. We like comfort. We like stability. We like old patterns. It's true in all every person. Uh, I love somebody says, I'm a disruptor. I'm like, bet you're not. <laughs> so I can prove that you have patterns in, in structure because it helps us understand the day. You can't just go willy-nilly all over. However, I think it's a great opportunity for HR to say, look, I need to be leading all the time. This is a chance for us to say change can be our normal because it already is. We had to make giant leaps this time because of a giant situation, a global situation, even if you're not a global company. Now you can say, because we know we have the ability, how do we do this on an ongoing basis? How do I not let people settle? First, you have to start saying, I'm not going to settle myself. And you can do that by getting connected to people who aren't settling people. There was a tweet today from Lars Schmidt, and uh, he was trying to crowdsource to say, who are mavericks in the industry? And somebody commented and said, well, you know, you're just talking to the same people. And I wrote back and I said, Lars is not a person who settles for the echo chamber. He wants people who are moving things forward. That's what he's asking. I understand where you're coming from. I agree with it. We tend to say, let's hear the same people all the time. But Lars is saying, who's really moving people forward? I think that's where we need to be. It's hard because the majority of people don't want to move forward, if mm -hmm. they were honest. They want things just to be stable. Stable is good. And there's room for that. However, my concern is if you're not moving forward, how relevant will you be? When you look at the restaurant industry, there are many concepts, big brands, who are going out of business. Mm -hmm. And even though I'm sure they have the capability to change, for some reason they couldn't. And now they'll be gone. And not gone because of the virus, gone because they weren't able to adapt quick enough to go forward. And that's going to affect people and their lives and their careers. Man, and not just my industry, any industry, if HR isn't willing to be on the leading edge, we're just going to be left behind. Yeah. And I think those are messages that, again, you've been sharing for a very long time and part of what prompted you to write your books. So for those who maybe haven't or maybe they read HR on Purpose when it first came out, give me the kind of uh, two-minute synopsis of what your first book, HR Purpose, was all about and why you chose to write that. I was tired of people tearing HR down. I still am. It, it infuriates me. Not a lot of things do, but when you tear down somebody's profession, I don't get it. You know, you don't hear people go, boy, sales, ugh. It, but <laughs> HR, when it comes to people, they just tear it down. It's really put a dark cloud over our profession. And I find that most of our peers don't own what they do uh, proudly. And, and I'm not saying arrogantly, just say, I'm an HR. I love it. I love working with people. I get to work with people on purpose. I want this all the time. So it was more of a call to enjoy what you do, you know, own what you do. Every other profession does it without apology. We apologize because we keep thinking, boy, if I'm nice, then everybody will like me. That's so high school. I'm sorry. <laughs> if I'm with the right crowd, ooh, it, it doesn't work. In an organization, we should never allow ourselves to be on the fringe ever. And we have for decades. So this was a thing of get off the fringe, get inside, own it, and be with the people. Well, I know you have a lot of stories about feedback and people who reached out to you after the book. I'm going to ask the contrary question. Did you have or do you have a, a something that comes to the top of mind of somebody who reached out or sent you some sort of communication or even wrote a review that, that absolutely disagreed with the premise of the book? No. No. And how many copies have you sold? Over 10,000, right? Oh, yeah, over 10,000. Over 10,000. Uh, I've had people disagree with parts of the book, mm -hmm. and that's fine. And that's how I wrote it, you know. It was supposed to be, you know, nuggets to use along the way. But the big thing was just thinking of things differently. I've always been the kind of person that when someone talks to me, when I hear them say it, I tend to want to move it in another direction. Not to be contrary, just to say, have you thought of it this way? Mm -hmm. What if you thought, you know, I, I, I get where you're coming. What about this? In order to, to try and have people think more broadly instead of just trying to get things done, 
at the same time, I struggle because I'm a constant thinker. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what but, what is a story where someone has told you that maybe the book really impacted them or changed their perspective? I'm getting notes every day, literally every day, one a day at least, from LinkedIn of people who have read my book, and it's three years old. And they said, I read HR on purpose, and it changed how I looked at HR. I want to stay in the field. I've had people say, I was going to quit the profession, and I want to stay in HR. And now people, especially new professionals, are writing me saying, I want HR to be this way. Here's a question, and they'll give me a situation they're facing and ask me for advice. I feel like Dr. Phil. I don't want to be Dr. Phil. (laughs) (laughs) How's that working for you? (laughs) Uh, No, no, but I I want to, you know, for people to, to connect with it on such a personal level is hard to put into words. I don't, I don't understand it. I'm very thankful. But I get stories literally every day saying, this has made me understand who I can be and what I can do. And I want to do this going forward. And then they go, can't wait to read your next book, which is just surreal to me. I don't get it. But I've had, I have stories from all over the world. Uh, when I announced the second book, somebody from Tanzania in East Africa said, read the first book, loved it. I'm like, what? How did someone in East Africa read a book that I wrote? And it's like, really like your perspective. This is how I think people should be treated. Can't wait for the next one. Has the first book been translated into other languages or is it just published in English? We've talked about it. I don't know. I hope it is. I would love to. We talked about it. And uh, one of the requests I got at Sherman Annual a few years ago is a person from Israel was there. He says, I'd love to have it in Hebrew. I'm like, oh, now that would be freaking cool just to see it. (laughs) see it written in symbols versus just, you know, letters or Hebrew letters, but man, it'd be cool. I'd love to get it translated into other languages, but, you know, I wait and see. Yeah. So as you mentioned three years ago, you you published with, through SHRM, HR Own Purpose. It's a bestseller, still selling many copies. And what prompted you? Was it just the response to the first book? Was it that you had more to say? both what what prompted you to write the second book hr rising it was funny matt davis who i work with at sherm is just a great friend it was a real quick story matt's first day at sherm was my birthday matt's first book was hr on purpose and so we've been working together since he started his career and interestingly when he first talked to me he's like so you know publisher 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 talk 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 and i said so Tell me about yourself. You know, <laughs> what do you like? Are you a rock person? I love music. You know, tell me a little bit about yourself. And he's like, who are you? And we developed this incredible relationship. And uh, I've been very fortunate. I've recommended people to him, uh, friends of ours, to get books taken a look at. And he came to me and said, so, how are you feeling? Think you have another one? And I said, ah, oh, let me think. And I had been doing a lot of different things here at work that I've been trying out and they've been sticking. And the piece I felt was missing just as I felt ownership was missing is I don't think HR people lead. We tend to think very uh, traditionally in that we say, I'm a leader if I'm at this level. If I'm an HR director, I can lead. If I can't, I'm, my hands are tied. Again, this is woe is me type of attitude or behavior. If I'm a CHRO, I can kill it. Well, what if your company doesn't have one? Well, does that mean you don't get to lead? You to just be miserable the rest of your career? So I wanted to write something to encourage people how to lead from where they are. This is not a new concept. People have been writing about this for years. But what they haven't written about is HR people. Mm-hmm. And uh, I believe in people. I know that sounds very trite and naive and utopian, but I'm like, God, got it. If you're cool enough to be in this field, go, come on, move that thing forward, push that rock up that hill. Even when it crushes, you get back up and push it back up again because it's going to make a difference because you're impacting people every day. So I want to write something that talked about how to encourage others to lead through their efforts, regardless of their position. So both HR on purpose and HR rising are written kind of in individual story format. I know I've heard you say you, you didn't you wanted it to be a book that people could put down and pick right back up. And it wasn't necessarily a a through line. I mean there is a through line of the the thoughts 
or the leadership and doing HR on purpose, but, you know, both as a speaker and as a writer, you're a storyteller. How do you think that helps people or you as a writer get your point across? I don't know. I think people are more accessible when you tell stories. People remember stories. There's a lot of science around, you know, boy, if, they, if I hear a story, it gives me different context than just straight facts. Straight facts are right, but you can make, you can find the facts you need to support anything. You know, Freakonomics, all this other kind of stuff. You can switch data around in order to support your argument. A story is an experience. And you can tell an experience, and this is my hidden trick, you can tell an experience without data. <laughs> and people go, oh, if you don't have data, you don't exist. No, it's not true. You can take data and storify it. Can you make that? Is that a word we can make up? Storify. I've seen that. I think like somebody gamify? might have got there before you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. Uh, I grew up in a small town around people that lived on farms, and we told stories. You know, you'd hear about somebody's day, and it'd be full and rich, and they were planting corn. Or they were milking a cow. And it was just the most vibrant and colorful story of a very simple task. So uh, I've always been somebody who's been more comfortable framing things in story. It always you know, goes with me and uh, my personal beliefs and my faith that uh, people remember stories. So what's, what's a favorite story from the book? Oh, uh, my favorite story is... Uh, no, you're going to make me emotional. Oh, uh, I dedicated, that's my goal. I'm I, the Oprah of podcasting, remember? <laughs> <laughs> I, I dedicated the book to my mom and dad because they're just, you know, without them, I wouldn't be around. And, and not just from a biological standpoint. My dad is my stepdad, technically. Mm-hmm. And in between my freshman and sophomore year in college, I came home. And my mom and dad own rental properties in Ada, Ohio, and they're houses. And so they rent houses to college students in Ada. And they're very popular because my mom and dad take care of their houses. And my mom and dad are very relationship-oriented. So people are like, they never have been empty. In all the years they've owned rental properties, they haven't had a vacancy because everybody recommends them. You've got to work with the Flemings. Oh, my gosh, they're great. Well, my dad is a doer, and his son is a thinker. His other son is more of a doer, a little of a thinker. But his first son, Thinker. So he had me go to one of our rental properties to tear down plaster off a wall so that we could renovate it and update it for, it was a 100-year-old house. And plaster back then, plaster, and there's wood behind it, and it's nasty. And my dad took me upstairs, gave me five seconds of instructions, and said, tear down this wall, and this is how, and he cracked the wall a few times with a hammer, he says, I'll be back at lunch to get you. And he says, and I brought a radio because I know you like music. I don't get it, but go ahead. And my father and I have a great relationship. But when it came to work, we just kind of always tussled. He came back at lunch. My father has been a hardworking man his entire career. Hardworking, ran a granny elevator, worked on a farm, just a hands-on guy. Always appreciated that. But when I came back, when he came back from lunch, I had a hole about four feet by three feet done. I'd taken all the plaster. I put it in the five-gallon bucket like he told me. I took it out of the dumpster and threw it out. He came back and lost his mind. He's like, what in the world are you doing? What have you been doing? And he starts cussing and he's sweating and there's spit coming out all over. And like most people, and since we had this oil and water relationship when it came to work, I did not back down. I'm like, how dare you? I've been sweating. We're just going at it. (laughs) Then he walks around the corner of this little hallway, and there's a sledgehammer sitting there. And he comes out and gets the sledgehammer and beats the hell out of the wall, takes down almost a full section of the wall in about two minutes. And he is dripping and angry, and his hair is all messed up. And he goes, that's how you take down this wall. I need you to do this. I said, you didn't give me the tools to do the job. He goes, we should have known it was there. And that's what happens in organizations, especially in HR. You don't know where the tools are. We don't equip people. We just tell them to get the work done. We're more focused on do it because I said so. This whole, we're theory why people and we're engagement and we're empowerment. Crap, not true. (laughs) Wish it was, just isn't. So we 
keep following these old-fashioned hierarchy linear thoughts instead of saying, hey, by the way, in order to do this job, the tool you need is right around the corner. That's all that had to happen in, at 8 o'clock in the morning, but he didn't. And instead, we had this giant blow-up. I did get the wall done. I was so mad. <laughs> I got the rest of the room done, and he came back. He goes, oh, that's how you work, and we went home and didn't talk. <laughs> and uh, that was in, gosh, early 80s, 1980s. And I told him I was going to put the story in the book before I wrote it. And he says, well, are you going to tell the truth? I said, I'm going to tell the truth. You're just not going to like it. <laughs> <laughs> the, verse, the real version of the truth. <laughs> and and uh, I'm sure when he reads it, because I haven't had a chance to get a copy to him yet, when he reads it, I'm sure he's going to say, well, what really happened was... And he'll tell the story of why well, I taught him how to be a good worker. And he did. He did. But I see that happening in organizations all, all the time. We're rushing to get things done instead of equipping people to perform. If we could equip people to perform, think what our organizations would be like. And mm-hmm. HR should make that happen. It's a great example and a great story from the book. I remember reading that. So with HR being in the title of both HR on purpose and HR rising, do you feel that this book is also for people who are not in HR? Yes, I do. And I'll give you two examples. One, there's a group in Texas of superintendents, people learning to be superintendents, and they do book reading and have a book club. And I got contacted by somebody, Dr. Sharon Ross, on Twitter. And she says, hey, we're reading your book. Just thought you should know. And I said, why are you reading HR on purpose? And she said, superintendents work with people. And when you look at organizations, the majority of people who are over others, people managers, uh, directors, supervisors, they're not directly in human resources by title or role. But the majority of their day, by far, is people. So yeah, these are people books. I got to talk to the superintendent class, and we did a Zoom meeting, and this was before the virus. But one of the things is if anybody ever has me come on and talk about the book specifically as a group, they have to come with questions. And they were very challenging. I saw this and what do you mean by this? And so we talked. So yeah, I think the books both to speak to the profession, but they also show HR people how to be more oriented towards the people who lead others. We can develop them and coach them and lift them up instead of trying to confine them and conform them. So Yes. Long answer to say it's a business book because as far as I know, most businesses have humans in them. Yes. Well, it's been, I read the book before it was published so that I could break the forward. So it's been a while since I've read it. So I may be mixing up either that it's in this book or one of your blog posts. Do you remember where you shared a story about kind of a meeting of, I believe it was the the general managers in your company, and you kind of facilitated a discussion. Can you share? Because I think that is a, a good example of that it's for leaders and also, as you said, for HR to see the leaders of people's perspective. Tell us about that story. I've been doing a development program with our general managers for all of our company stores. And what's great about it is it gives them a time to break away from the day-to-day. We all think we're busy. Run a restaurant. And then you'll understand you're not busy at all because they are constantly interrupted. All good, but it is nonstop the entire time they're there. So we wanted to get them away. And we have a learning center where we go sit down. And what's funny is the people in operations went, so what's this all about? What are you going to do? I said, we're going to talk. They go, talk about what? I go, talk. That's all we're going to do. And we're going to talk about people and see where their pain points are and learn from them and listen to where they're coming from instead of us consistently. And this every organization does this. You think you're helping the next level of people managers by giving them more things to do. Instead of saying, how are things going? What can we improve? And then can I equip you with what you need versus just doing it from my desk saying, I know what you need. So, I sat down with him. I said, so when you hear from the company, what do we ask you to focus on? And the first thing they said was numbers, doc, gone it. And it got visceral. <laughs> you know, And they're very good at that. So they know that if they do certain tasks, they'll hit certain numbers. If they get certain numbers, they're incentivized and they're 
bonus on that. I mean, there's a tie to it. It's not just a task. There's an incentive and compensation plan. But you could tell it was very challenging because their focus was, I got to hit my number. I got to hit my number. And whenever anybody comes back out, they said, whenever anybody comes to the store, except you, (laughs) (laughs) you ask about numbers. Now, it's nice because numbers don't have emotions. And that's why the great people I work with talk about that because we can talk about tasks and we can talk about things. But what it is, is we talk about results. And we think if, you know, results in January were this, February, they need to be this. We need to move up a point, down a point. And I said, fair enough. I said, and when we get that, how do we do it? He says, well, you come up with another freaking process. And uh, frick was not the word that was used. (laughs) (laughs) And they're great people. I really love sitting down with the managers and uh, hearing them talk and just allowing them to be safe and just express themselves. And what's funny is they weren't saying it out of being upset. They were saying it because they want to do better. They want to give their best. They want to do well. And they just feel like their hands are tied through a bunch of just, in their minds, bureaucracy, extra steps, more processes, more steps. And I said, cool. So what you're saying is if we have results, we make processes. The processes give us new results. Yeah, yeah, sort of. Now I said, where's your focus really during the day? I said, people. I said, how much? Give me a percentage. Let's do a number. And they go, 85%. And at one day, I just says, 85? What? No. He goes, 95? I mean, my entire day is people. Guests, team members, people not showing up for work, people complaining. And we'll get to the negative side of it later. But really, it's just, you know, people tearing at them. I said, neat. So what if we did this? If your focus is people and we gave you better processes to equip you, what kind of results will we get? They said, I don't know. They said, well, I'd like to try a new theory. People plus processes equals results. I said, and I'll bet you it works. And this is how we're going to prove it. They're like, oh, no. I said, I want you to say hi and thank you to everybody that works with you for 30 days. Every day, every day, every day, including the people you don't like. (laughs) And a few of them rolled their eyes like, really? They brought up a few names and we laughed. (laughs) I was like, yeah, you got to talk to the people you don't like too. And what's funny is I don't think that many HR people talk to their other people that way. Mm-hmm. We placate, we say nice things. Hey, people struggle with each other. Hey, I'd rather say, you know, I struggle with people. They were like, who? <laughs> like, <laughs> Each one of you. No, when we got done, I said, try it out. So of the 13 stores, six people did it. So half of them did not because they said, stupid HR guy, he's a dork. And that's fine. I said, okay, why didn't the others of you do it? That's a freaking waste of time. I go, cool. Let's ask the ones who did. The ones who did said, man, I really like the people I work with. I thank them for coming in. I said, you don't have to say anything else. Don't ask about anything to say. Gosh, Jennifer, great. Thanks for coming in today. So glad you're here. Have a great shift. See ya. Do that. That's it for 30 days. So I said, since you didn't do it, I'm going to ask you to do it for another 30 days. The next time, eight of the 13 did it. And we're getting closer. There's a few that just don't want to. (laughs) And that's okay. We're working on it. It's not a punishment side of HR. It's a development. To develop, you have to be patient and treat people individually. But what I'm saying is now the people that they were ignoring, they're paying attention to. They're acknowledging. They're giving them compliments. They're saying thank you for choosing to come to work today. Ironically, before we got on the podcast, true story, the CEO of the company came by today. He goes, thanks for coming in. He's trying. Day one. I said, said, what's going on? He goes, I just want you to know, I appreciate you being here today. Thank you. I know that, you know, you didn't have to. He goes, you chose to come in. I'm an executive and he's a CEO and he's thanking me for coming in. Look at that behavior. It's huge. I really, really wish people would use a people-first lens all the time, not just when it's convenient or because there's a crisis. If people would use a people-first lens, you'd have better conversations. When things get ugly, you'd be ready for them. If things turn south, you can go crazy and go, hey, 
it just brings the temperature of the organization down and people are more open to conversations and they'll do better. What do you see in the future for HR leaders, business in general, as we kind of go to what's next? Unfortunately, I think there's going to be fallout. I think there's going to be loss. Before we see gains, there's going to be loss. And you see it, like I said, in the restaurant business where people have unfortunately economically hit tough times. When things are under the gun like that, people tend to focus on getting out and just getting away from the pain that they're facing. I think in order to move ahead, like we said earlier, don't fall back, move forward. Don't ignore the past. I don't believe in that. But I think now that you've been through this very difficult situation, how do you say, I want to be prepared all the time so when the next difficult situation happens, I'm ready for it. But until then, we're not going to treat it like a difficult situation. We're going to treat it as the day to come. I think, you know, both living in the present, don't go light years ahead, the three-year, five-year, that kind of thing. You should do some of that thinking, but you have to do it in the same time as looking forward. So I need to take care of the day-to-day and the people I care for, as well as looking ahead. So do more thoughtful planning. Do more thoughtful development. I think if I had my dream, performance reviews would disappear because I would get rid of the report card mentality of an organization and have a development check-in measurement mentality to move people forward to the extent that they're able. It doesn't mean that everybody has to become an executive but they should be the most full, performing, valuable person they are in their role. If they have the opportunity to move forward, great. If they don't, they should be awesome at what they do. And I would love to see HR take a hold of their people a lot more and treat them like talent instead of calling them talent. You know, talent to me, they told, you know, we have to be talent focused. It's like the seat at the table argument. It's a catchphrase. We don't really believe people are talented. We believe people are problems, and then we punish them until we think they'll do better. Not sarcastic, not cynical, reality. I think we need to be talent-focused. Value what people do uh, all the time. Because they can contribute from where they are just like people can lead from where they are. I agree. So we're dealing, we're in the day-to-day, we're focused on the people, but what is going forward look like for Steve Brown? What's next? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't even know what I'm doing tonight. <laughs> uh, I, I've never been good at that. Here, here's what I get a kick out of. I really hope that the message that I wrote helps change the profession and make it better. If that happens, then we'll see where the doors open. And I'm very open to that. I don't have to know everything ahead of time. In fact, I don't do well when I do. Uh, I, I'm, it's, a, it's a fault of mine. I'm very aware of that. Uh, and it's not that I'm na- naive and go, oh, whatever comes. It's not that. Uh, but I don't have to have everything laid out for me at all. I'm very spontaneous, probably too spontaneous. Mm-hmm. Uh, so next, uh, man, I'd love to talk. I'd love to get back to speaking. I know you do too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd love to get in front of people to encourage them and be in person and just get, that, get the word out and lift them up because it's just missing in life in general. Yeah, And I'd like to have them know that someone believes in them, not just virtually, but mm-hmm. in person. That would be phenomenal. Uh, ironically, when I put out that I wrote another book, I didn't think I'd write one. So I'm just, just you know, astonished I wrote two. Honest to goodness, good friends of ours like, so, writing a third one? I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> it's, it's hard to do this. And I, I don't, I don't want to write one to write one. I want to write one if I have something to say. Well, I want people when they, you know, if they have their copies of both HR on purpose and HR rising, or if you're going to get that, there are a couple of Easter eggs for those who like to find those types of things. You are the, you have always been the double exclamation point guy, the single space double exclamation point. I've, I've edited your content before and I think I took those out. I'm sorry. Uh, (laughs) You convinced your publisher to keep that because it's part of who you are. So on HR on purpose, the double exclamation points on the cover go to the right. 
on HR rising, they go to the left. And on the spines, HR on purpose has one exclamation point. That probably was hard for you. And HR rising has two. So I guess that was my question. If there's a third book in the series, and by the way, there's a box set coming out. If it's out, we'll certainly link to it if it's out by the time this show publishes. Will there be a three exclamation point on the spine? Oh, yeah. If there's a, if it's a, if there's a third book, you bet. Uh, it, it's funny. I, when the first one came out, uh, I don't know if I shared this or not. When the first one came out, the artist at Sherm, who did the book, who was very talented, said, hey, this is wrong. There's, there's two, you can't have two exclamation points. That's just grammatically wrong. And Matt had to fight for it. And what's funny is after she did the work, I actually was back at headquarters and I went and met her. And I said, hey, I heard you struggle with two exclamation points. And she went, oh my gosh, who are you? And it was just hilarious. She's very talented, gifted, gifted artist. Uh, when she got this one, it was no problem. <laughs> well, and I think I've, you know, you're, you're a strong personal brand, which is obviously something I talk about as well. And I think it's a good example of something that, I mean, maybe you just did it because that's who you are in the beginning, but now it's part of who you are. And, and one of the stories you shared in one of your talks from the stage a while back made me cry. I mean, you brought some of the things that people have sent you, the llamas and the tie-dye and, you know, things that are part of your brand. And and I believe a mutual friend of ours sent you a book on exclamation point. Is that... Do you oh, yeah. That? Yeah. What's it called? It's, it's right exclamation mark. Yeah, it's on my <laughs> shelf. Exclamation mark, because uh, the whole point was everybody told the exclamation mark. It's a children's book. Excla everybody told the exclamation mark that they were too passionate and they needed to calm down. And so they were trying to change who he was into something that they wanted. And somebody said, no, you need to be yourself. And then at the end of the book, there's exclamation park marks all over the point. He couldn't deal with one. There were several. And I'm like, ah, oh. she goes, when I read this, I thought of you. And I'm like, yep, there you go. That's a great personal brand example. It's also a good, good kind of sum of who you are. You know, the exclamation point was different. And you said, not only do I want to be different, I want to be double different. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I always enjoy talking with you. I'm so excited for you with the publication of the second book. And uh, okay, three years from now, if we're talking about the third book, I kind of believe that'll happen. So we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Steve. And you have a great rest of your day focusing on people first. Thanks, Jennifer. I love being here and I love the work you're doing. It's time for you to get noticed, create change and grow your influence. Don't waste any time. Subscribe to this podcast and help us get the word out by leaving a review. 